from 1 Corinthians 4, beginning in verse 29. 1 Corinthians 14, 29. And let two or three prophets speak, and let the others pass judgment. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, let the first keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Let the women keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak. But let them subject themselves, just as the law also says. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. Was it from you that the word of God first went forth, or has it come to you only? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. But if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Therefore, my brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy, and do not forbid to speak in tongues. But let all things be done properly and in an orderly manner. Let's pray. I again, Lord, just um, I thank you for what you've given us in your word. It's here, Lord, to be the very rule of our faith. Not for us to pass judgment on, but for it to pass judgment on us. That we would be instructed and guided. And that we would be brought into greater conformity to your very person, as well as to your will. And so I again ask God that you would work in us, that we would give our amen to all that you have given to us. That we would be in agreement with you, and we rejoice, God, in what you have said to us. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Well, there are times when I believe that God wrote things in this book to make the lives of preachers difficult. (laughs) This is, again, one of those passages. There are four parts here to what we just read. Um, The first is constraints on prophets and prophecy. The second will be constraints on women. And in particular, when it comes to the evaluation of those prophecies. And then third, the true character of spiritual maturity or spirituality. And then some concluding remarks that Paul has here for the church in regard to spiritual gifts. So first of all, he has some constraints that he puts on the gift of prophecy and those who prophesy. He's already put constraints on the gift of tongues. And you recall that he says only two or three at a time, one at a time, no more than that, and each with an interpreter. Very similar to that, he now says with prophesying, only two or three prophets may speak at any given time. And then he's going to say then, the other, then one at a time, he'll clarify. So clearly, again, that when it comes to the church service, there is not to be um, the, 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 gift, the, 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 the church character should not be dominated by one thing or by a group of people in particular. The characteristic of the church ought to be the person of Jesus Christ and every person being edified in him. But as we already noted, and this is important, um, the, the nature of prophecy in the New Testament seems to be quite a bit different than the nature of prophecy in the Old Testament. We can't speak with 100% assurance of what was going on in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, but we know in the Old Testament it seems that when a prophet was raised up by God, they were in that office really for the rest of their lives. They may have prophesied only one time, but for the rest of their lives, they were known as a prophet of God. It seems that, that they, would have a, a, they would be tested or evaluated as being prophets in some way, and, and the community of faith said, this is a prophet of God. And they weren't continually being subject to tests. It was just they passed the test, 
And for the rest of their lives, they were known as prophets. And what they were given was accepted as being from God. That doesn't seem to be quite the same in the New Testament. In the New Testament, prophecy was was much more common, it appears, because we're told that you may all prophesy, Paul's going to say in this verse. Not every person of Israel prophesied, but every person of the church is encouraged to prophesy. That's a major difference that the Lord is, is giving us here in the New Testament. And so definition then becomes important, and I pointed out a couple weeks ago that it seems that to me that, that though John wrote Revelation and not Paul, when John said in Revelation 19.10 that the testimony of Christ is the spirit of prophecy, that's a good definition. So that when a person, a Christian, and this is the birthright of every Christian, is hearing from God and speaking from God, and he may not even know that he's hearing from God and speaking from God, but when that takes place, it will be focused on the person of Jesus Christ and prophecy has taken place. And that is the birthright of every Christian. So in Acts chapter 2, Peter says, Joel's prophecy is that all your sons and daughters shall prophesy, not a select few. The office of prophet in the Old Testament pointed to Jesus Christ, and Jesus fulfilled that office. And so there is no one today who is, who is standing in the office of prophet. But one of the biggest things, distinctions between Old Testament and New Testament seems to be there was not a continuous evaluation of the prophets and their prophecies in the Old Testament. They were recognized, and then from that point on, it was just accepted These men are speaking from God. But here we're told in verse 29, let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment every single time. That's not something that seems to to characterize the Old Testament. But every single time that a person would, would presume to speak, and I'm not saying that they aren't, but they presume to speak from God to the church of God every single time. The church, others, are to pass judgment. There's a, a, a good cross-reference here, I think, and that's 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, if you want to look at that. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, as Paul's finishing up this epistle, he says, um, just picking in, up in verse 16, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And then he says, do not quench the Spirit. And then he adds to that, maybe a word of explanation on what he means, do not despise prophetic utterances. Now this is interesting. If prophecy in the New Testament is carrying the same weight and has the same authority as prophecy in the Old Testament, why would Paul need to say, do not despise prophetic utterances? So it seems that this is cutting a lower profile. In the, it's more common, but with less significance, less authority, that Paul would have to say, don't despise it. And in chapter, in 1 Corinthians, Everyone can prophesy. In other words, don't discourage it. But then he says in the next verse, but examine everything carefully. 1 Thessalonians 5.21. I think that's in relation to the prophecies. Don't despise prophetic utterances. People should be free to speak what they believe that God is telling them to say. Don't despise it. But neither should you accept it with no examination. Examine everything carefully. And the word here for examine means to sift like you would sift flour. In other words, look for the good and throw out the bad. That's not what you did with the Old Testament. You didn't look for the good and throw out the bad. If there was any bad in it at all, stone the prophet. There's nothing in the New Testament that says stone the prophet. There seems to be a big distinction here between Old Testament and New Testament with this description of prophecy. So what is this sifting, looking for the good and looking for the bad? And that's where I think that that the prophecy of Agabus in Acts is an important place to go. Because Agabus stood up to Paul and said, Paul, 
What are you thinking going to Jerusalem? God has told me that when you go to Jerusalem, this is what is going to be awaiting you. And he took Paul's belt and he bound himself with it and said, in this way you are going to be bound and handed over to the Jews. That didn't happen that way. And Paul felt the freedom to say, I understand what you're telling me, but I believe that what God is saying through you, he's warning me about what's happening. He's not forbidding me to go. And so he said, thank you for that word of admonition, that word of warning. But I don't believe that God is telling me not to go. He's just saying, be prepared for what you're going to face. And as we know, Paul was not bound with his own belt, and he was not handed over to the Jews. He was not even handed over to the Romans. The Romans intervened to spare his life from the Jews. So there were the, generally speaking, Agabus was correct. He got in trouble. And he's going to spend the next few years of his life in jail before he finally has his day of court before Caesar. So it wasn't totally wrong, but neither was it totally right. Sift it. Examine it. He doesn't dismiss prophecy any more than he, dis than he dismisses tongues. Prophecy is significant but it is not on the same level as Scripture. And for that reason, it should be examined by the others in the church. Examined against what? Well, I think it goes without saying against something that has greater authority than what the prophet. Because if the prophecy is on the same level of Scripture, then what are we doing even examining it? But it seems to be that it has to be examined against Scripture. Does this fit with what we know that God says in His Word? And if it does, great. If it doesn't, fine. You know, I, I think about when, and I've used this illustration before, but you know, when Y2K was coming around, and we were all in a panic, you remember, you know, Home Depot sold more um, generators than it ever sold in its history, and then on January 2nd, they were all returned. Um, and because we all thought the sky was going to fall. And I know one, one good pastor, excellent man, um, he really truly believed that God had told him this is going to be the end of civilization as we know it. And he was telling his congregation, prepare for this. And he believed that he had heard from God that we need to get ready for all-out disaster. And he was in Colorado where his church was, and he, he, had had, he said, I've got a stash out in the mountains. I've dug a hole, and I've hidden you know, some basic essentials out there, and I would recommend each of you to do the same. He had you know, hard currency, gold and silver and things, and, and you know, just, just basic things that he thought were going to be necessary. None of it happened. None of it happened. And I remember talking to Arnold Frutenbaum. Some of you all recognize that name. He's a believing Jewish scholar, lives here in San Antonio. And, um, and I was talking to Arnold about Y2K ahead of it. So what do you think, Arnold? You know, is, is, the, is the sky going to fall? And Arnold just said, not going to happen. And he's got this very unique accent. And I can't hardly mimic it. Not going to happen. And, and, and I go, what do you mean, not going to happen? And he, and, he, and he goes, if it, he says, if it were that calamitous, that huge of a thing, as everybody is predicting, there would be something in God's word about it. And there isn't. Relax. Arnold was right. The other guy who thought, I mean, I'm telling you, he is, he is a fine man. And he truly believed that God had told him that this is what's going to happen. He was mistaken. And, and so, again, I, I appreciate Arnold going, if it's that calamitous, that huge, something in Scripture would point to it. And it didn't. So he said, relax. Now, we could relax anyway because God's in control. Doesn't mean that we don't make sensible, prudent preparation for what we know is going to happen, but we never need to be in a panic. God is our Father and the one who cares for us. My point is simply... We can be very convinced about something that we believe that God has told us. And we can be wrong. 
we surely can be wrong. What do we do? We hold it lightly, loosely, and we let others pass judgment. This is why sometimes you just, you know, especially when you're young and you're full of vigor and you're convinced of something, let others pass judgment. We had a student that, great guy, um, married a great gal, and he somehow got sucked up in this, with this young man, they're the same age, who believed that he was receiving letters from God um, every, do, every day and sometimes several times a day, and he was pinning them. And this other student, former student bound them in a book probably 300, 350 pages long and sent me and, and several men that, that had taught him at his hill copies of those books. We all had the same reaction. And not to mince words, I, you know, I, this is from the pit of hell. This is not from God. And the reason that we all felt so strongly about it was not because the content was so bad. The content was pretty bland, really. I mean, it was a lot of spiritual talk that didn't really go anywhere, didn't hurt anybody in and of itself. But this guy was presuming that every one of these was direct revelation from God and had the authority of Scripture. That's a major problem. I put mine in the barbecue pit and burned it. And I told him that. And I said, because I don't want to throw it in the trash and have somebody else pick it up. And every single man that he went to, with no exceptions, you need to run, told him. Have nothing to do with this. And he didn't. It cost him his marriage. Sad story. Let others pass judgment against God's word. Who are these others? Because the, the basis of the judgment is God's word. One, it would be people of spiritual maturity who can handle God's word and would have the ability to examine it against what God has said in his word. But because this is in the context of the church, the church assembly, and a, and a prophecy that is given to the assembly of, of believers, the local church, I think we can go further and say, this is to be the male leadership of the church. And I believe that because of what he's going to say in the next part here. Let the others pass judgment. If a revelation, well, revelation, doesn't that put it on the same authority as Scripture? No, it doesn't. If a revelation is made to another who is seated, see, this revelation could be an insight into something that God has said in his word. Hey, I was just reading this, and man, I just, I never thought of it before. How many times have we been, heard that, you know, in a Sunday school class? Or, or you know, I, or people, I can't tell you how many times people come up to me after church and say, you know, I've never thought of this before, but I just thought of this while you were preaching. And I go, sometimes, many times, I go, wow, that's a tremendous insight. Other times I'm going, to myself, that's the craziest thing I ever heard in my life. That doesn't happen very often. But that can happen. And so, see, this is a, it can, but sometimes it truly is a revelation in the sense that the light bulbs have gone on, right? And you go, wow, I never saw that before. And you go, why did I ever see that before? That is so obvious. I'll give you an example. And I, you know, I, when I was preaching through Ephesians in chapter one there, where it talks about being chosen, you know, and that's one of the, Favorite verses for the, for the strict Calvinist, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And they go, you know, and that's just, that is just a cornerstone verse for those that believe that we are predestined to salvation. And if you're not predestined to salvation, then others would say you're predestined to hell. And I, man, I'm just going, is that right? But I just, reading it as it's written, and every single translation, I know of no exceptions, translates it the same way. It doesn't say we are chosen to be in Him. It says that those who are in Him are chosen to be holy and blameless. That's how it's written. And that is a completely different... And I'm going, wow, how come I've never seen that before? Revelation. 
You see? And then I go, well, does anybody else back that up? And then I find out there's lots of people out there who see that's exactly what it means. I just, you just don't ever hear them. And there's one guy that's written a whole academic book on it. You know, you know I can't even hardly get through the thing. It's so academic. You're talking about Greek diagramming and stuff. But, he, that, you know, I just said in, you know, in one paragraph what he spent 300 pages saying. It's, it, it's, it, look, look at where the verb is. Chosen in him to be holy and blameless. The to be is the, the, the other end of the verb. The object of the verb is to be holy and blameless. It's not to be in him. Very simple. So it doesn't say that refutes everything of that particular doctrine, but it does say that verse doesn't support it. That's a rabbit trail. My point being that God gives revelation, and the revelation needs to be examined by others. Is this consistent with what God is saying in his word? Is this a proper handling of God's word? So, if God gives you a revelation, you can make it known. And then sit down and let the others pass judgment. I've heard by those who have written books that it's like um, giving birth to a child and then putting it out there in public and let everybody tell you how ugly they think that that child is. (laughs) It's hard to let others pass judgment. But again, the crucified life It's not about us, but it's about Jesus. It's a message that Christ died. Why would I not want others to pass judgment? Why would I not subject myself to that? It would only be pride that would keep me from it. And if we are not able to have others examine what we believe, what we teach, what we've heard, there's a problem. And many times we've each seen that. Sometimes it's an experience that a person has. I had the student call me up and say, Charlie, man, I tell you, we had this Bible study. Me and these guys have been having it for a long time. I've told you about it. And he says, last night we all got drunk with the Holy Spirit and we were all laughing uncontrollably, falling all over the place, except for one of the guys, also a former student, and he was, he was crying uncontrollably and he fell in the pool and he almost drowned, and we were all laughing so hard we almost couldn't get him out of the pool. And I'm going, that's interesting. <laughs> and I just started asking him a couple questions. And he said, I didn't call you up to have you challenge whether this is from God or not. And he hung up the phone. That grieves my heart. Do not despise prophetic utterances but carefully examine everything. Don't quench the spirit, but carefully examine everything. So if a revelation is made to another who is seated, let the first keep silent. For you can all prophesy, one by one. Men and women alike, one at a time. But, Only two or three in any given church service. So that you may all learn and all may be exhorted. So what's happening here with prophesying is people are learning and people are being exhorted. That's part of why God does this. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. We've had different guest speakers and it's not just them. Sometimes myself, I've fallen guilty of the same. Man, you're teaching a class and you just, man, you just feel like God is speaking through you. Ooh, you know, and, 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 you just, and you're just going, this is better, man. I wish I could take notes on myself right now. This is so good. And you look up at the clock and you're supposed to end at 1220. But how can you stop the spirit? And you just, man, you just, and it's 1230. And, you know, and Audrey's down there going, when are they going to let class out? Who's teaching anyway? Oh, it's dad again. You know, but, you know, and you, but see, that's the thing. And I remember having to talk to one of the guest speakers one time years ago because he always went over. And he says, Charlie, when the spirit's moving, you know, how do you stop? And I said, well, brother. 
Maybe the Spirit wants to move to the, through the next two guest speakers following you as well, and you're taking their time. And he got the message, and to his credit, he started ending on time. God can end on time. You say, Charlie, preach to yourself here. <laughs> really, I mean, I mean, preachers are infamous for not ending on time. Why can't God end on time? I mean, God's a pretty precise God from all I can see in creation. And, and, there's, and, it, and, it, you know, and it's not boxing God in. You know, God created this universe in six days, not six and a half days. You know, not six hours and ten minutes. You know, he got it done. And that was the time that he allotted to himself. And he, and he got it done. And so if a preacher has been allotted 20 minutes, well then God can get it done in 20 minutes. If he's allotted 50 minutes, then God can get it done in 50 minutes. He doesn't need 55. I remember being in Bible college one time and Stuart Briscoe came to speak. And man, I'm telling you, that guy takes only the amount of time given to him and not a second more. And I mean not a second. We, we started getting our watches out while he was praying, and we'd see when the second hand hit the 12, and he's, and he's, amen. How does that man do that? Every single time. He must not have his eyes closed while he's praying or something. I mean, it spoke to us young, budding Bible college preacher-to-be's. Not all of us learned much, but anyway, we, it was a good example. The point being, when the Spirit of God is moving, you are not out of control. You will never be more in control, under control, than when the Spirit of God is filling your life and moving through you. Your thoughts are going to be sound. Your emotions are going to be under control. This is what troubles me, and I think a lot of us, when we hear about the holy laughter, when you watch the YouTube videos, or maybe you've been in the churches when it's happened, and people are clearly, by their own confession, out of control. That is not the kind of God we serve. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and what? Self-control. So we will never... <laughs> you can't plan these things, I'm telling you. When the Spirit of God is having His way in us, we'll never be like those little children who are not yet learning self-control. There's a difference is between self-discipline, that's something that we're in control of, and self-control. Self-control is something the Spirit of God does. Self-discipline is something we do. We can discipline our children, but it's the Spirit of God that brings self-control. We all know that. So nobody can say, I couldn't stop. I couldn't keep from doing this or that. Yes, you could. When we're out of control, it's because God is not in control. God is not a God of confusion. He's just not. I don't know how you could say that more straightforwardly than what Paul has. He is not a God of confusion. When you go to some countries and there is just chaos and confusion, you wonder where God is. But he is a God of peace. And when there is order, there is peace. As in all the churches of the saints. Some churches may be more charismatic and more exuberant in their styles of worship than other churches. Not a problem. What is a problem is not how much you clap your hands or whether you stand up you know, or sit when you sing. None of that is a big deal. But if we're out of control in our church services, and somebody were to walk in and say, these people are out of control, 
they would have every reason to question if God is having his way. Because God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Now, not only are there constraints on prophets and prophesying, there are constraints on women. And I'm not trying to dodge a bullet here, though um, I think it's, I truly believe the best way to handle what Paul is saying now in these next three verses about women, it has to be understood in the context of what he's just said concerning the evaluation of prophecies. Let women keep silent in the churches in relation to the examination of the prophecies. He doesn't just say that, but I think we're supposed to make that connection. Why? Because he just said you can all prophesy. And in chapter 11, Paul says, I permit women to pray and prophesy in church. And so to say that Paul is absolutely silencing women presents a contradiction with chapter 11 and a real difficulty with verse 31, you can all prophesy. And Paul's not going to contradict himself. This is the inspired word of God. So he is not silencing women in all respects. Remember, there's, there's always two ditches. In every matter that you can think of, there's, there's two extremes. And then there's the center, the tension, that place of, of, of faith and biblical truth. And that is the hardest place to live. So the one ditch is, you're a woman, shut your mouth. You can't say anything anytime when the church is assembled. The other extreme, you're a woman, doesn't matter. You're one in Christ with the men, yes. You're equal with the men, yes. There are no distinctions, therefore, no. But that's the other extreme. So that extreme would say women can be elders, women can be pastors, that there are no, absolutely no role distinctions whatsoever between men and women. The hard place to live is in the middle. And not just because we're seeking compromise, but it's the, it's the center of biblical truth, that place of tension. God is not silencing women, and at the same time, he does establish role distinctions. We've already seen, so not to rehash this, those role distinctions are based upon the Trinity itself, and then in God's creation design in Genesis chapter 2. They are not cultural. They are not cultural. Within the Trinity itself, and that's the place that Paul starts in 1 Corinthians 11, he points out to us that God the Father and God the Son are absolutely one. Theologians like to say they share the same essence. There are not two gods. We have one God. But the one God is three persons, and those three distinct persons have distinct roles. The Father is always the head. Now we're getting into hierarchy. In the Trinity, there is hierarchy, and the Father is always at the head. The Son and the Spirit are both under the Father, and the Spirit is under both the Son and the Father. There is order, there is obedience, there is submission, there is hierarchy, within the Trinity, and it has nothing to do with sin. It is good. It is the way that God himself is. And so we would expect that what is true of God would be reflected in his church. That's what this is about. It is a good thing. The only reason I am fully convinced that we hate submission and obedience, and it's not, we all hate it, is because of sin. For the Jesus joyfully obeyed the Father, joyfully submitted to the Father. It is because of sin that we don't count obedience to be joyful. So when it comes to the evaluation of the prophecies, women, let the male leadership of the church handle this. As one writer pointed out, Hypothetically, he said, assume that the man who gives the prophecy is married, which would be a pretty good assumption. 
assume that his wife is in the church, which would be a pretty good assumption. And all can pass judgment. So the husband stands up. I really believe this is what God is saying to us. Okay, he sits down. Wife stands up. Can you prove that based on Scripture? How do you think that's going to go at home later on that evening? And she's standing up for everybody and says, you know, I love you, husband, and, but, you know, I think you're out of your mind. Where does that come from? It's not going to work real well. And so the first woman who challenges her husband, you can see the problem. I haven't taught Sunday school here in a long time, um, so there may not even be anybody, well, there might be one or two families still here in the church from back then, but it doesn't pertain to you all. But I can remember teaching the adult Sunday school class, and there would be, you know, because the format's different, so there's open time for, for questions. And on a couple of different times, didn't happen very often, but I remember a couple of different times, where there would be a, a husband and wife sitting together, and the wife would go, Charlie, I'd like to know what you think about this, and she'd raise the question. And before I'd answer, I'd look at the husband, and he's already turned, you know, quartered away from her. And his, he, you can just see his jaw set. And I'm thinking, this is already a conversation they've had at home. And she's trying to get me to side with her against him. That's not right. Wrong platform. Wrong way to, to do. I'm not, you know, I don't even want to go there. So Paul says, keep silent in the churches. They are not permitted to speak. But let them subject themselves just as the law also says. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. Now let me just make some observations here. Let them subject themselves. By my count, there are five times in the New Testament where it says, wives, be submissive to your husbands. Wives, subject yourselves to your husbands. And there are zero times where it says, husbands, make your wives submit. Because you can't. <laughs> Why? Give up on it. You know, it, 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 it just, it's, you can't make another human being submit. You can't. You may get them to do it on the outside, but you're not going to get them to do it on the inside. And so the scripture never says, husbands, make your wives submit. But it speaks directly to the woman. So this is not, so again, this is not demeaning. Because if it were demeaning, Paul would be talking through the husbands to the women. Husbands, tell your wives to submit themselves. But he doesn't do that. He speaks directly to the women. And he says, you should subject yourselves. Submit yourselves. Wives, be submissive to your husbands. And here, let them subject themselves. This is a personal choice. Just as the law says. There is no verse in the Old Testament that says this, but it is the general tone of the Old Testament, especially looking at Genesis 2 and God's creation design. If they desire to learn anything, Paul's not opposed to women learning. You can learn. That's not the issue here. But I wonder if there's not a hint of sarcasm. because We've already seen a lot of sarcasm in 1 Corinthians from Paul. If they just, why, why are you asking questions? I just want to learn. I just want to learn. Man, I tell you, I've, I've, I've fielded too many questions to be so naive as to think that behind every question is just the desire to learn. Many times behind the question is the desire to make the teacher look foolish or to elevate himself as being the smarter of the two people, Right? And there is the aspect where even the right to ask questions presumes at times an authority over the other person. Like we would say to our children, who are you to ask me anything? Who are you to question me? Now, we shouldn't go there. No teacher should go there. No husband should go there with relation to his wife. But it does speak sometimes of this challenge of authority. Asking questions can be a challenge to authority. We all know that. And that's what Paul, I think, is trying to avoid. Don't challenge the male leadership. Don't challenge your husbands. If you really want to learn, and there is no problem with that, if that's what this is about, you just honestly want to learn, well, then go home and ask your husband. But he's stupid. 
He doesn't know the scripture as well as I do. I've never seen him even read his Bible. I don't even know he has a Bible. He says he's a... Go home. And maybe you should say to your husband, I really want to know what you think. This is what's going on at church. This is what this guy is saying. I'm not feeling so great about it. But what do you think? And the God who can reveal might just surprise you and speak to you through that dumb, block-headed husband. After all, isn't this a passage about prophecy? That God can speak to people? Maybe he'll speak to your husband. And surprise, surprise, you get the answers that you were looking for. Man, I tell you, I've, I've, I've heard stories of that actually happening. <laughs> Being a little facetious here, where a woman is surprised, she asks her husband, goes, man, it's amazing. That, there's a lot more to that guy than I thought there was. Well, maybe you should ask him more questions and listen to what God wants to say through him to you. I've said in so many weddings that I've officiated, speaking to the young bride, the God who led you to this man can lead you through this man. Do you believe that? That God who led you to this man can lead you through this man. Go home. Ask your husband. It is improper for a woman to speak in church. Now this is where the egalitarians, those that hate role distinctions whatsoever between men and women, would say, well, what Paul has in mind here is that in the ancient church, the women sat on one side of the room, the men sat on the other side of the room, and for a woman to ask her husband anything means he would, she would have to shout across the church, hey, husband, over there. What's he talking about? Do you agree with And that would have been just chaotic. That would have been disorderly. And it would have been chaotic, and it would have been disorderly. You're right. But that's not what he says. He doesn't say, ask your husbands, because it would be disorderly not to. He says it would be improper. Improper. That is an entirely different word. Just to jump ahead to Paul's conclusion, look at verse 40. Let all things be done properly and orderly. So Paul knows there's a distinction here. So when he says, wives, go home and ask your husbands, it is improper for a woman to speak in church. And, he's, and again, the context examining the prophecies, he does not say it would be disorderly for her to speak in church. He knows that word. He uses it in verse 40. He says it's improper. Improper is more like if I were to come to church in a Speedo. And that, would, that would always be improper. And it would also be disorderly. But they are two different things, right? So we used to, years ago, we'd have Germans that came over here. And, that, and I'm thinking the only bathing suit they sell in Germany must be a Speedo. And they would show up in his hill and we're all going, oh my word, improper, improper. You know, and that's what improper is, okay? It's, it goes against what is proper. I don't know how, I mean, it's probably a big enough word picture. I don't even need to go any further with that. It's not proper. That is totally different than disorderly. Well, some would say it's because she lacks an education. The Greek-Roman culture, women were not educated. Well, number one, that is false. And there have been enough studies done, enough research done on this, that there were many, many very highly educated women in the Greek and Roman societies. But if it were true that women were generally not educated, men were, how does it make it improper for a woman to speak because she's uneducated? But why doesn't Paul say it's improper for a man to speak who's uneducated? Can, man, can an uneducated man speak when an uneducated woman can't? No. It's not about the level of education. It's about the sexual role distinctions. 
and in particular the distinctions between husband and wife. And it is improper for a woman to cast that aside and to portray herself as though there is no role distinction whatsoever between herself and her husband, even in the body of Christ. It's improper. Was it from you that the word of God first went forth? I, I, I would have to say the commentators are probably all right because they all of them say this is not speaking to women in verse 36, but it's speaking to the Corinthian church in general. Because they've got a problem, of they, as we've seen throughout this letter, of doing things that nobody else is doing in any other church. And that would include letting the women take on an authority that is not proper. Was it from you that the word of God first went forth? The answer is no. Or, or has it come to you only? And the answer is no. Look around you, Paul's saying. There was no church history when Paul wrote this. There was just the church universal. And the universal church at this time was consistent on this issue. So you've got, remember, the church is the body of Christ. So you've got all these churches, all of them the body of Christ, everywhere, and they're all doing exactly the same thing, and you've got the Corinthian church out there doing something else. And that's what it's like. You've got this, like you've got this arm out there just going, what is wrong with that arm? It's not, it's not behaving like the rest of the body is behaving. So you don't go, well, let's all be like that, that, like that arm that's different than all the other appendages, right? There's something wrong with that one. But isn't that what we do today? We find this one church that's different from all the others, and we go, wow, that's new. That must be the Spirit of God because it's new and it's different. And you're going, why would you think that? That is like the Corinthian church. It's just out there going crazy. And it's not what God is doing universally in his body. And so we just start copying the difference. And before long, everybody's out there being different. But Paul says, look around. This is not what's going on anywhere else. Now, what is the true character of spirituality? Verse 37 and I am going to spend an end on time because I said, I mean, I made a big deal about that. Verse 37, if anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, literally a spiritual, if you think you are a spiritual one, woo, I'm spiritual, well, then let him recognize this. The things that I write to you are the Lord's commandment. In other words, this isn't just Paul talking. And you don't have the right to set it aside. 1 Timothy chapter 2, and I may just be digging the hole deeper here, but in 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Times, so many times, I've heard both women and men say, well, Charlie, she is teaching men under the authority of the pastor, under the authority of the church. Somebody's too quick on that bell. <laughs> Our clock's not right. My watch doesn't say that. Now what do I do? <laughs> I'm going to go by our one, our clock, okay? My response to that, she's teaching under the authority of the pastor. My response is simply, no pastor has the authority to permit what Paul forbids. Because it is God speaking through Paul. I can't tell a person, hey, I know the speed limit through Comfort, Texas is 35 miles an hour, but hey, I give you permission to drive 75. I do not have the authority to permit what the state of Texas forbids. It's just as simple as that. No pastor has the authority to permit what Scripture forbids, period. And so that's what Paul's getting to here. This is the commandment of God. You can't set it aside. And a spiritually mature person approaches God's word that way. He's not looking for how to skirt it, how to get around it, but he's looking to obey it. This is what God has said. Who am I to pass judgment on what God has said. Spiritually mature people 
are humble enough to take God's word at what it says and accept it. I may not understand it. I may not like it. But it isn't about making me happy or pleasing me. It's about dying to self. And if this is what God has said, who am I to argue? That isn't being infantile. That is being mature. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Paul doesn't recognize them, neither should we. And there's a question whether God will recognize them. I don't think this means that they're going to lose their salvation, but they're certainly not going to have standing as being um, rewarded significantly when they stand before God because they live their life ignoring God's word. And then his conclusion, therefore, my brethren, everything he's been saying, there is not a problem with desiring earnestly to prophesy. The problem is in our definition. And if what he means here, and I believe it is, being in that position spiritually where God can speak to you and God can speak through you, who would not want that? That is our birthright as Christians. We should want it and desire it. And when it comes to tongues, don't forbid it. Nobody has the right to say to a person who speaks in tongues, you should stop speaking in tongues. It's not our right. But there are restrictions on it. Let all things be done properly and in an orderly manner. And my final application here, and I have 40 seconds. There is no life form anywhere in the universe that does not have boundaries and constraints to it. If it is living, it is defined. God himself has boundaries and definition. His own nature his own character. Why would we think that when it comes to the church of God, there would be no boundaries, no limitations on the spiritual gifts, on women, on men, on the whole thing? Where there is life, there are boundaries and limits. And God is saying, live within those boundaries and limits that I've established. I'll pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. For all these things, they are good. We may not like them, we may not see the sense of them, but I pray, God, that in our hearts we would be yielded and that we would say, yes, Lord, thy will be done and not ours. In Jesus' name, amen.